Thank you, Jesse, for leading us in worship this morning through song, and for Ricky for leading us in worship through sharing the gospel through what God did in his life. You know, yesterday evening I was uh, relaxing a little bit, watching a little college football. <clears throat> I won't mention any teams because I don't want to cause a church split this morning or anything like that, any disunity in the house of God this morning. But uh, I thought about, have you ever seen a, a, a team that's so lopsided uh, I should probably explain that word. That might be a Louisiana thing. Uh, cattywampus, whopper-jawed, uh, so one-sided that it seems like uh, one team has the other team's playbook, right? So like one team can't do anything wrong while the other team can't do anything right. It seems like every move they make, the, the one coach knows what the other coach is going to call from his playbook. It's like he's read his, his, uh, his game strategy or whatever. Well, I think in 1942... Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a fictional but a very interesting, fascinating book called The Screwtape Letters, where he does just that, tries to give Christians a look into the devil's playbook, tries to give Christians an idea of what the devil's up to, if you will. It's fictional. It's not, it's not scripture. Uh, we don't hold it with that kind of authority, but it's an interesting read. And in it, he makes a claim that I think is pretty helpful as we study through Mark's gospel today. Lewis says this in The Screwtape Letters. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall into about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, just to believe that they're not there. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They, the demons themselves, are quite equally pleased with both of these errors and hell the materialist and the magician with the same delight. I think we see these errors in our culture as we look around us even today. That as we look at our world, you see materialists. You see those that value too highly man's ability to reason and to think. And they are, are fooled into disbelieving that demons, angels, spiritual beings even exist at all. They don't believe in spiritual beings. On the other hand, you have the influence of, of the New Age movement and postmodern mysticism that just runs full steam ahead and, and, and is enamored by this idea of, of demons and angels and spiritual warfare. And you see this, I mean, even dating back to the 60s with Rosemary's Baby or the 1970s, early 1970s with The Exorcist. Even Hollywood has become just fascinated and capitalized upon this interest in demonic activity. And there's tons of movies that come out every year that focus on, on demons. Sometimes our world becomes too obsessed with them. And I think we need a good dose of biblical balance and a healthy understanding of spiritual, spiritual warfare and, and what the Bible says is reality. What does the Bible say about demons and demonic activity? I think Mark 5, the first 20 verses, provides an excellent starting place for this conversation, for what we should believe about demons and Satan and demonic activity and spiritual warfare. As we study Mark chapter 5 verse 1 through 20 this morning, uh, the text of the uh, Gerasen demoniac that the, the Bible says, the Gadarean boy, says some call him, uh, affirms the biblical reality of Satan and demons. But in doing so, as we study it this morning, we want to refrain from promoting an unhealthy fascination with them. The takeaway this morning is not, man, that, that demon stuff is really interesting. I want to go study that some more and become an expert in demonology or whatever. Our goal this morning is to reveal Satan's purpose, but then more importantly, to demonstrate Jesus' power and authority over evil forces, over the demonic activity 
over the forces of Satan and even Jesus' ability to heal and restore those that have been done harm by Satan and demons. And so before we read this morning, a bit of a reminder, if you've not been with us, we've, we've been studying verse by verse through Mark's gospel, and we've recently seen Jesus' authority, Mark's demonstrated to us Jesus' authority through his teaching ministry, that Jesus teaches with an authority unlike the scribes and Pharisees, unlike the religious leaders of the day. Uh, we've more recently moved into a section of Mark's gospel where we see four actions from Christ, four things that Christ is doing that demonstrate his authority. Each action demonstrating his authority over different things. So uh, the last time we were together in Mark chapter 4, we saw Jesus' authority over nature. That he can speak to a storm and it has to obey him. Uh, As we move into the text this morning, we see his authority over demons, Satan himself, demonic activity. And as we move into the coming weeks, we'll see his authority over sickness and even death. And these four different actions or activities that Christ is, is demonstrating to us through Mark's gospel. A little bit of background for you. Jesus has just calmed the sea. You remember back in Mark chapter 4, literally hurricane force winds, the Greek language would indicate. uh, One moment, Jesus speaks to the storm, and in the next moment, there's a perfect calm. Water as clear and as still as glass as Jesus calms the storm with his mere words. The disciples... They'd ask this question at the end of that text, in the end of Mark chapter 4. That's kind of where we left uh, uh, the disciples and Jesus uh, two weeks ago. They asked this question, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? And they're about to get their answer this morning in the text that we're in this morning, but it's from a most unlikely source. Let's read together. Mark chapter 5, we'll read verses 1 through 20. And they they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerizines. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. And he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he had wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him, night and day. Among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when Jesus from afar, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to them, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and he begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. And so he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. And the herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had 
uh, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you this morning that we see that Jesus has all authority, not just over nature, but over demons and spiritual warfare, demonic activity. Father, we thank you this morning that in your text last week and this week, when your authority is on display, men and women are afraid because you are a powerful God with all authority. Help us this morning, God, to marvel at your authority, to marvel at who you are as we gaze into the text. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Three points for you this morning, three main points, and a whole bunch of sub-points, but three main points this morning. Number one, no one is so broken that Jesus' power can't restore them. No one is so broken that Jesus' power can't restore them. First five verses, we meet a man that is so badly broken that likely everyone that knew him had probably given up hope for him. Think of the way the Bible describes him, the description that we're given of him, and you see this desperate situation. You see this man and and how desperate he must have been. I counted eight characteristics of him in the text. You may have counted more or may come up with more. I'll give you my eight as we see the brokenness that this man uh, demonstrates. Number one, his association with the Gentiles. This alone was reason enough for all of the Jewish people, the disciples that were following Jesus, to not have any association with him, right? So they get into a boat, they leave the side of the Sea of Galilee where they've been doing ministry, a a primarily Jewish region, mostly Jews, and they go to the other side of the sea to this region known as the Gerizines, and when they get there, there's there's an obvious indicator that they're in a region now that has a lot of, um, of Gentile people, the pigs, right? They're, the fact that there's a, there's a herd or a farmer with, with pigs is an indicator that they're in a Gentile territory. Remember, Jews have nothing to do with pigs, with swine. And so there's an indicator for us. This man's living in a, a Gentile area. Even before his demon possession, he's living among Gentiles. And so he's an outcast. This man would have been written off because of his association with non-Jews. He couldn't have been living among, among Jews. Second thing I think we see, description of him, he's unclean. You see that in the text immediately. He's, he's not only associating with Gentiles, but he lived among the tombs. This made him unclean according to Jewish standards. According to Jewish law, any contact with the dead or contact with tombs of the dead would render a person ceremonially unclean. That means he couldn't be a part of Jewish social life. You couldn't go down to the, the, ten, the tabernacle or the temple. You couldn't be a part of life as a Jew if you had been in contact with the dead. So this man is unclean. A good Jew wouldn't even touch a dead body. And this man is living with dead bodies. He's living in a graveyard. So he's unclean. Third thing we see about him, he's possessed. Verse 2, right off the bat, makes it clear to us that this man is possessed by an unclean spirit. Or as we later find out in the text, numerous unclean spirits. A legion of unclean spirits or demons. He's ceremonially unclean, but he's also unclean on the inside. The ceremonially uncleanliness is his, is, is his ability or non-ability to go into the temple and worship because he's ceremonially unclean because of his contact with the dead. Here we find out he's also unclean on the inside. His heart, his soul is being controlled by these unclean spirits, these demons. Number four, he's secluded. You see that about him. He's completely cut off from human contact. He's isolated from the world as he knows it, from his family, from the people that he knew before this demon possession. He's living in a graveyard by himself. That has to be the absolute worst, right? 
been to a graveyard at nighttime, even if you're, you're not scared by like movies and things like that, it's just a little bit creepy to be in a graveyard at night, especially by yourself. And this is this guy's home. This is where he stayed all the time. He lived in these tombs. He's isolated. He's secluded. He's running around wild, cutting himself off from his family, from his community. He's an outcast. Number five, he's violent. You notice this in the text because of the way that on numerous occasions they've tried to bind him up with chains. Let me ask you something. You don't, you don't bind up someone if there's no reason to bind them up. You bind them up because they're a threat to the, the health and physical condition of other people, right? Some of you are thinking, well, I'd kind of like to bind up my kids sometime. They kind of get them controlled and under, uh, under control for a few minutes. You don't bind someone unless there's a reason to bind them. And he had been bound many times. He was a violent man, hurting himself and a threat to others. Number six, he had supernatural strength. These demons that had tormented him, people tried to bind him. They would literally give him the power to throw off the chains, to burst the chains and shackles that were on his hands and feet. This supernatural strength as being uh, controlled by or possessed by these demons. Number seven, he was under constant suffering. You see this in the text. Night and day he would run naked among the tombs, crying out in agony. Now it's not clear in Mark's gospel that he's naked, but if you read Luke's account in the gospel of Luke, it's quite clear that the man hasn't had clothes for a while. He's in agony. He's suffering. His condition is so bad that he's running around crying out like a wild animal in pain. And then number eight, he's self-destructive. He practiced self-destructive behavior. He's cutting himself with stones, the text says. The demons had controlled him to the point that he would take rocks and cut himself. And I don't know if you've cut yourself with like a paper cut or a really sharp, sharp pocket knife or kitchen knife. It's easy to do and it hurts like crazy. It's not so easy to do with rocks. It takes effort. It takes force to cut yourself with a rock. That's what this man has resorted to. He's in such agony and pain that he's cutting himself with rocks. And so can you picture this man this morning, friends? Let the word of God come alive in your heart and mind this morning and see this man's behavior. See his brokenness. See this man's desperation. This was absolutely the plan of Satan to control and possess this poor man's soul. And as a result, this man is howling like a wild animal. He's uh, running around slicing himself with rocks. He's running around half naked, unkempt, and full of pain. He's trying in any way he can to commit suicide, but he's even failing at that. (laughs) Now just a mere shell of cuts and bruises, lacerations, sores, infected scabs. Friends, make no mistake, friends. The plan of Satan was to make the image of God that this man had been created in so unrecognizable that he didn't even look like a human being anymore. That was this man's situation, and it's hard to imagine a more miserable existence. This man was desperate. He was broken. So the application for us this morning, I think, friends, is clear. If there's ever a man, there's ever a guy that was beyond the reach of God, beyond the power of God, so broken that Jesus' power could never restore them, it would have been this guy. So the reality this morning, friends, is that if God can reach and restore this man, he can reach and restore anyone. So what does that mean for us? Some people think that they've sinned so badly that God would have nothing to do with them. That their sin is so dark and ugly that God would have nothing for them. Friends, don't, don't, don't understand and hear the lie of Satan this morning. That is not true. You've, you've lied to someone you love, maybe. Maybe you've been unfaithful to your spouse. Maybe you've embezzled or stolen money from your company. 
You've hidden secret sins away that if anyone knew, you would be so embarrassed you wouldn't want to come out of your closet. Friends, God can restore you. Regardless of where you find yourself this morning spiritually or what sin you may be entrapped by, God can restore you. He can reach us in the deepest depths of our sin. He sent his son to die the death we deserve so that we could be set free from our sin. I think additionally an application from this would be that there may be some that you've been praying for for years. You've been praying for them for as long as you can remember. And it seems that they're further from God now than they ever have been. And in so far from God that you wonder if God could even reach them. If it's even possible for them to come back to Christ. Friends, don't give up. If they have breath in their lungs and they are not too far or too broken for God to reach and to restore. Second point I think we see in the text this morning. No amount of demonic force is so powerful that Jesus can't conquer. So, so number one, we, we, we see that, that no one is so broken that Jesus' power can't restore them. I think the similar, similar thing we see in, in the next few verses, verses 6 through 13, there's no amount of demonic force that is so powerful that Jesus can't conquer. No person so broken, no demonic force so powerful that Jesus can't overcome. Look at verse 6. And when he saw Jesus... From afar, he ran and fell down before him. Don't just gloss over verse 6 like it's a transition verse, like it just gets us to the next part of the story. Picture this, friends. Imagine this in your mind's eye. The disciples have beached their boat. They have uh, now sailed across the Sea of Galilee through an incredible adventure, uh, for lack of a better word. Think about what they've been through as they, as they literally a few hours ago thought they were going to die in a shipwreck. They thought this hurricane force winds were going were gonna, to uh, cap their, capsize their vote and they were going to die there in the Sea of Galilee. And now they're spiraling. They're amazed. They're blown away and even afraid because Jesus has demonstrated that he has power over nature, that he speaks to hurricanes and they obey him. And so they're probably still amazed and afraid and shaking and they can't wait for their feet to touch ground. I mean, you can imagine if you've been through something like this, you are super excited when that boat pulls into the shore and you can get on the ground again. You don't want to be in that water anymore, right? And so they beach the boat and the very next thing they know is that a naked, bleeding, screaming maniac is running at them. Just picture that with me, friends. Folks have been shot for much less around here, I'm sure. Someone running at them, no clothes. He's yelling at the top of his lungs like a wild animal. And then surprisingly, he falls down at the feet of Jesus. Can you imagine this? And then kneeling there, I think we, we need to observe this morning, and we'll do this several times in the text, his kneeling is not an act of worship, at least not yet. It was an acknowledgment of the authority of Christ. He does acknowledge that this one who is on the banks now has all authority, but it's not worship. You see this in verse 7. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, don't torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of them. Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. This spiritual encounter, in light of what's happening physically and what the disciples can see, this spiritual encounter was completely one-sided. Completely lopsided. It shows us that without a doubt, Jesus has all authority, not just over nature like we saw two weeks ago, but over demonic force as well. And we see that in seven ways. So I gave you eight ways last time. Seven ways we see Jesus' authority over demonic force in this set of verses. Number one, physical submission. 
All right? So normally, under normal circumstances, we would not be able to physically see with our eyes the, the, the submission of demons physically to Jesus' authority, right? We don't see that every day. You don't walk down the street and just see demons bowing down uh, before Christ. Um, in this case, though, we do get to see that because demons are possessing this man's body. And so we see through his body that these demons are physically bowing under Christ's control. And we see that in the way this man and those demons fall to their knees before Jesus physically submitting to his power. So you see physical, um, physical submission there. Number two, you see verbal confession. Like the other demons that we've encountered in Mark's gospel, when confronted with, with Christ and who Christ is, the authority of Christ, they're compelled to confess him. And truthfully, or I remind you, they confess him truthfully as the son of God. And so we see in the text, they cry out, son of the most high God. They get it absolutely right there. The disciples are not even fully understanding what this means yet, and the demons get it. Son of the most high God. They cry out. This is not, um, again, this is not worship. They're not, they're not ascribing praise or adoration to Jesus. They're simply acknowledging that he is God. Jesus' deity is an attempt to gain control over Jesus. We've mentioned this before. It was a common assumption at this time in this world that the use of a precise name of an adversary gave you control or power over him. And the irony here, I think the irony in this text, and there are several things that are ironic in this, uh, this passage, in these 20 verses, but the irony here is that these demons' uh, confession here in verse 7 is really an answer to the disciples' question back in chapter 4. You remember their question, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? The demons pipe up with the answer. He's the son of the most high God. So we see their confession. Number three, we see Jesus' authority over demons in their desperation, right? There's a desperation as these demons are confronted with Christ. You see it in verse seven. I adjure you by God, the demon says. Or in some of your translations, it may even say, swear to God, swear to God. The irony here is that the demons, again, more irony for us, the demons are calling upon God's name to ask for help so that Jesus would leave them alone. The demons are asking God to help them get away from God. You talk about desperation. I don't know that you've ever seen any more desperate measures than demons resorting to calling upon God for help. That's desperate. It shows us the power and authority of Christ. We see the power and authority of Christ in the demons' fear of punishment. They're deathly afraid of being punished by Christ. Look at verse 7 again. What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. I adjure you by God not to torture us. They know the power of Christ. They know the authority of Christ. And they know that he has the ability, the authority, and the right to punish them eternally. They know their fate is coming. Number five, we see Jesus' authority in their obedience. The demon's obedience to Jesus' command. The demons here in this text mind much better than most of our kids do. I mean, you think about this. When, when they're confronted with Christ, it's one thing for someone to give orders to a, a, a sports team or orders to their, their troop in a military battle or orders to their own kids and them obey. It's a completely different and different level of authority. It's a completely different thing for you to give orders to the enemy and the enemy obeys you. And that's exactly what happens here. That's how much authority Jesus has over Satan and demonic forces. The demons obey him at every turn. And again, this is not loving, worshipful obedience like the Christian has towards Christ. This is just simply a, a, a obedience recognizing uh, the authority of Christ and having a fear and a reverence for Christ. 
When Jesus casts them out, they have to go. When Jesus demands their name, they have to speak up. These demons completely obey Christ because he has authority over them. We see Christ's authority number six. And that their number, the fact that they outnumbered Jesus, it didn't give them an advantage over Jesus. You see this in verse 9. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now imagine this scene with me. If this statement right here doesn't freak you out, I'm not sure what else would. You're standing there, this battered and beaten up naked man is there. And as he opens his mouth, it's not him that's talking, but it's the demons talking through his lips in the first person. That's scary stuff. But it's not even that that's so scary. It's what he says. It's what the demon says through him that's terrifying. You see, a Roman legion would have consisted of 6,000 foot soldiers, 120 horsemen riding on horseback as soldiers, and all of the, the technical personnel uh, that, would, that would go with a troop, a legion like this, uh, to do different duties. And so to the Jewish listener, to the Jewish audience hearing this text or hearing this story or hearing this from the herdsmen of the pigs that day, they would have heard legion, and it would have brought terror to their hearts. See, when they heard legion, they would have thought great numbers. They would have thought efficient organization. They would have thought uh, relentless military victories. When they heard legion, it was serious. And the fact that this demon just called himself legion because there were many possessing this man was frightening. It was terrifying. You ever heard of power in numbers? Well, this is exactly what's being emphasized here. This demon is saying, hey, we're, we're a lot. We're, there's a lot of us here, Jesus. And yet, Jesus, it didn't matter if there was one demon or a hundred legions. They bow to his authority. And that's what we see in the text. Number seven, we see the authority of Jesus finally in their whining, begging, and pleading. We see Jesus' power and authority over these demons by the way that this huge mob, this legion of demons is begging and pleading with Jesus for mercy, Right? Verse 10, and he, that's legion, that's the spokesperson for these demons, begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. You ever seen a kid who, though the law has been laid down, though they've been told and it's been explained thoroughly, this is what about, is about to happen. We're going to get in the car and we're going to go. And then that kid just, you know, begins to whine and, and beg and bellyache and complain and grumble and moan and pout. That's these demons. The tormentor has become the tormented and at the command of Christ, they are begging and pleading for, for mercy. Don't send us into the abyss. Don't send us into an attorney that we know awaits us, but let us stay here. It's all to no avail. They've already caused this young man so much harm, so much pain, so much agony. And hope is on the way. Christ is here now. Christ is here, and these demons will not be granted any mercy. Which brings us to the pigs, right? Verse 11, now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. And so he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. I think it's important for us to see here in the text this, this, this morning that these demons are not negotiating with Jesus it's not as if they're sitting around a poker table and they're trying to call Jesus' bluff, like, can you really do that? It's not as if they have bargaining chips or, or, or chips that they can lay on the table and negotiate a fair deal with Jesus. They're simply begging for their lives. They're pleading for mercy. 
And this gives us a preview, and I think this is a beautiful preview of, for, and hope for us that are in Christ, that though we live in a fallen world right now that is under the influence of demonic activity and force, this gives us a preview of what awaits Satan and his demons. The lake of fire, the abyss, an eternity away from Christ, where Christ will protect his church and his bride under his authority. They know that Christ has the authority to send them there, and they're trying to delay the inevitable, and they ask to be sent into these pigs instead. And surprisingly, Jesus gives them permission. And again, note though, note in the text that not until Jesus allows it, gives them permission, grants this request, can they act. It's not as if they can just, oh, well, he's here, so we'll just go jump in these pigs. It's at Jesus' word are they able to move. Some people are probably reading this or hearing this text, really put off by what Jesus does here. Jesus' actions, are you, are you kidding me? Right? Like, are you, are you kidding me? Jesus did this? He, he has no love for, for animals, for these pigs? Somebody needs to call Pete on this guy. Set these demons and these pigs and the whole herd goes over the cliff. Right? Like, you're, you're, you're wigging out because Jesus does this to these animals. But I think there's a point here. And I think there's a reason for Jesus granting this request. Again, they're not moving until he says the word. And I think you remember Mark's point here. Mark's gospel is showing us the authority that Jesus has over nature and now over demonic activity. And these swine, these pigs, 2,000 of them, just gave us and these disciples that day a visible picture of what this man was being overwhelmed by, right? The Greek word here, the Greek verb that's used here, graphically pictures the disappearance of pig after pig into the sea. And with each one, they're able to see a visible picture of what this young man had just been rescued from. Every one of these demons were in him, and Jesus has liberated and set him free. I think that's what we see there. And again, we said it in Deuteronomy, and we said this many times, that if human life is not too high a price to pay for the holiness and glory of God, then certainly a herd of pigs are not too important that Jesus would not use them to demonstrate his majesty and his glory, his power and his authority. A second thing, though, I think you see in this that uh, the violation of a human being, the human being created in the image of God, uh, is stronger than that of an animal. So, so what Legion was not able to do in this young man, cause him to kill himself, he was able to do just that quickly in a herd of pigs. You see in that, in the image of God, we are created, and there's something special in the way that God has created and fashioned us. Satan desires death, but Jesus has conquered the grave. He has authority over Satan and any influence that he would have. Also noteworthy, I think, in this text, like the storm that we studied two weeks ago, Jesus doesn't recite some magical formula. He doesn't wave a wand and say some hocus-pocus like you see in Hollywood. There's no flashy show. He simply speaks to the wind and to demons, and they obey. That's the authority of Christ. He speaks, they listen. Number three, nothing, friends, nothing is more important than being consumed with Jesus. Nothing is more important than being consumed with Jesus, verses 14 through 20. Before we read verse 14, though, it reminds you of a familiar verse that you will for sure have heard before. 2 Corinthians verse five, or chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So remember that text because I think this picture, the man that we see in verses, in these, these latter verses, verses 14 through 20, is, is more clear picture, more apparent uh, of this verse than anything else we could see. That when Jesus changes this man, he truly is a new creature in Christ. You'd think there would be joy, right? 
You would think after being transformed and, and being restored by Christ, there would be thanksgiving and celebration. But sadly, many people responded differently. They responded with fear and frustration. Look at verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. I'm sure at first they were a bit shocked, right? Like, is this really him? For those that knew him before, they, they come and they, they see him and he's just simply sitting there. He's not running around wild and in rage and screaming at the top of his lungs. He's quiet and he's calm. He's not naked anymore, but he's dressed and he's, he's not cutting in himself anymore, but he's simply sitting there and he's in his right mind. He's smiling at the right times. You see, because crazy people smile. They just smile at the wrong time. He's smiling at the right time. He's laughing. He's being social. He's having conversation. He's alert. He knew who he was and he knew who they were, but more importantly, he knew who it was that had just restored him. Perhaps he's sitting there and he's smiling. He's rejoicing in his salvation. But the townspeople show up and they have something else in mind. Look at verse 15. And those who had seen it described to them, that's the townspeople, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus, beg Jesus. For the second time we see begging in the text, beg Jesus to depart from their region. First time we see begging, it's the demons, right? They're begging for mercy. Now we see the townspeople begging, but they're begging for Jesus to leave, to get out, to go away. They beg Jesus to leave. This is a surprising and disappointing response. After what we've just seen in the text, after we see the transformation in this man's life, to see them saying this, to see the townspeople begging Jesus to leave is is sad and disappointing. Jesus had just rid their village of a menace, of a threat, of someone who was violent and could harm them. But more importantly than that, Jesus had just saved a man from utter destruction. He had just rescued a man from demonic force. And all they can think about are their pigs. That's all they care about. Sadly, this is a common response to Jesus. You know what I mean. Maybe you and your story was that you committed your life to Christ. Jesus came in and he changed you. He cleaned you up. He made you a new person. He took out all the garbage in your life. And yet some of the people that were closest to you, they saw the change and they didn't like it. They rejected you. They didn't want to be around you or have anything to do with you anymore. You knew that you were better off. You knew the sin that Christ had freed you from made you a new person, and you knew you were better off. So why would they reject you? Friends, it was not you they were rejecting, but Christ. You see, when some are confronted with the authority of Christ, they want nothing to do with him or his power. And so they push him away, even if that means they have to push you away too. And so, concerned with their pigs, they yell at Jesus, get out. Get out, Jesus. We don't want you here anymore. You're causing harm to our livelihood. You're taking away our pigs. Get out of here. Jesus, not staying where he's not wanted, says in verse 18, and as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Third time we're seeing someone begging the text. You see, the man who had been set free had a different response from the townspeople. He's now begging to be with Christ. The demoniac was so grateful. This young boy that had been set free was so thankful that he asked to go with Jesus. And you can just picture it, right? Like, Jesus, no one has loved me with the way that you've loved me. No one has shown me mercy like this before. No one could ever do for me what you just did for me. And so I want to go with you. I love you, and I want to be with you. And where you go doesn't matter. I'll go there. I just want to be with you. I want to be in your presence. I want to walk by your side. I want to commune with you and have fellowship with you. I want to give my life to you. You know, it's funny. That should be our response when we come to know Christ, right? 
That's what this man does. And somewhat surprisingly, though, Jesus denies his request. Look at, look at it again, verse 19. And he did not, that's he, Jesus, did not permit him to go, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. In gratitude, this man wants to follow Jesus. In thankfulness, this man wants to go wherever Jesus is going. Our Lord, however, though, had a different assignment for him. He had an evangelistic assignment for him. He says, go tell others what I've done for you. Go share with others the mercy that I've shown to you. Start in your home. Work out from your home. Go from your home to your your community, to your village, and tell others what I've done for you. Basically, Jesus says this. Go share your testimony with everybody you come into contact with, starting with those in your home closest to you. And I think there's a lesson for us here that we were lost, but now we're found, that we were controlled by Satan, but we've now come under the kingship of God. And as a result, he's called us to be witnesses and a testimony for him. And the reality of the text is, friends, that Jesus doesn't require you to have a seminary degree. He doesn't require you to memorize books of the Bible so that you can go and share Jesus. Go tell him what he's done for you. Tell him how he's changed your life. You heard Ricky do it this morning. Tell them how Jesus has transformed you. That's what we're required to do. You see the grace of God here at work as well. Don't miss this church family. This Gazarene people, these, these townspeople, they show up and they did not want Jesus, but Jesus still wanted them, right? Even after they commanded Jesus, get out, get out of our town. We don't want you here. He sends them a witness proclaiming the, the glory of God, the gospel that could rescue them, the power of God and the authority of Christ. What an incredible grace. That's our story as well. We denied him. We ran from him. We didn't want anything to do with him. We told him no when we felt the calling of the Holy Spirit. And yet he wanted us still and he pursued us and he sent the Spirit and the Word of God to call us to himself. That's the grace of God. We see it at work here with these townspeople as well. He sends them a witness in this young man. Unlike many of Jesus' followers, this man, he doesn't argue. He doesn't complain. He doesn't make up an excuse. He doesn't shirk back in fear or refuse his master's orders. It says this in verse 20. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. It's fun to imagine this scene, right? As he goes back into the town, the village where he was from. And you see these people, right, that that only know him as legion, that only remember him as being that guy that was controlled by those demons. And now they're seeing a guy transformed by Jesus' power and authority. Can you imagine what, what their faces must have done as they saw him? I'm sure, friends, that as he's on his way back into town and he's telling everyone about Jesus and what Jesus had just done for him, I'm sure that the words of Christ were ringing in his head. That as he was walking back into town, he kept hearing Jesus say, go home, (laughs) go to your family and go tell all your friends, those that knew you, those that were close to you, how much the Lord has done for you. Now, friends, listen to me closely. This is not in the text. This is not scripture. This is not the Bible, but I I just imagine. Can you just put on your your thinking cap a little bit this morning and and imagine with me what that must have been like? Just picture this. You can imagine the excitement building in his heart as he got closer to wherever home was. Maybe his heart starts racing with excitement. Maybe he's starting to sweat a little bit because what would those that were closest to him do? How would they respond? How have things changed since he's been gone? He has family. Perhaps even a wife and kids. We don't know. How long had it been since he had seen them? How long had it been since he had kissed his wife? How long had it been since he had held his children? You can imagine the excitement and anticipation, but also nervousness as he approaches his home. How is it going to be different? Are they going to even respond to me? Are they going to be afraid of me still? And then he sees home on the horizon. 
And you can imagine as he sees home and, 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 and he gets closer, he can start to make out. Maybe there's, a, maybe there's his young son playing on the dirt in the front yard. And he's, he sees his daddy coming from a distance. And he, he gets up and he's, he's not sure how to respond yet. And then maybe a, a daughter comes out of the house and she stops dead in her tracks. And she screams as only a young girl can, Mommy, Mommy, Daddy's back. Daddy's here. Daddy's come home and he seems to be all better. He's well. Can you imagine the excitement that must have taken place that day as they begin to approach their daddy? And now he's no longer walking towards home. He's excited and he's in a full sprint towards the house. And as he gets closer, the kids run to greet him. And, and maybe he just grabs them up into his arms and holds them close and embraces them as they, as they cling to him and their daddy who had been gone for so long. And he, he weeps as he holds them. Because he'd been gone for so long, but he weeps even more because he knows that when he left, he was not the kind of daddy that they wanted to be around. He was the kind of daddy that they were afraid of and they wanted nothing to do with. And now because of Christ, he's been restored and he just holds his babies in his arms. And then mom walks through the front door. Oh, she's there and she's seeing this scene and her husband's returned and she's speechless. She's overwhelmed with joy. The excitement that she has because she hasn't seen him in so long. He's here and he's well. And as she runs into the yard to meet him, they're embracing, they're holding, they're crying tears of joy as daddy's returned and daddy's been made better. But how could this be? You can imagine the questions. How is he different? How has he changed? How is the demon, how have they left him? He was so ugly and, and fearful when he left and we were so afraid of him, but now he's well. And wiping the tears from his eyes, he looks at his kids, he looks at his wife and he says, it all changed. It all changed when I met a man named Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to never take for granted that you've rescued us from the power of sin. God, you've freed us from the penalty of sin by giving your son to die on a cross for us and that one day, God, you'll return and you will take us away from the presence of sin and we will be with you for all eternity. And as we see the story in the text this morning, we praise you that you have all authority. Not over just nature, Father, but you have authority over demons. They bow to you. They completely obey because you have all power and all authority. God, I pray if there are those this morning here that, that are still under the power of sin, never surrendered their life to you this morning, that they would see in the text one who has the power and authority to reach to the depths of sin and restore anyone in any condition. God, would you this morning help us to stand in awe of who you are, help us to surrender our lives to you, to the authority of Christ and the forgiveness that you offer. We give you this time and pray that you would move as we respond to the text. Help us to surrender to you. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, church family, as we stand, let's sing. Let's respond to the text we've heard. Christ has all authority. He's worthy of our worship. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you've never surrendered to him, We'd love to talk to you about what that looks like. I'll be available here now or after the service. Come and find someone here. It doesn't have to be me. And ask them to share with you what it means to give your life to Jesus. Church family, let's worship. He's worthy of our praise.